So I thought I was the queen of Airbnb. Check the profile. I visited all the places. However, how can I truly be a queen if I have never been a host? Didn't even think about it, y'all. It's time to think about it because my place is cute. Why not share? I know. I got you thinking about it now. All right. Well, don't think about it. Be about it. Find out how you can be a host at Airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Questlove Supreme. I'm giving you guys fair warning now that if you ever complained about my uh, inside baseball method of interviewing, then you're not going to be any happier with this particular episode. However, (laughs) if, if you are a uh, music head and you know your music and you know your album credits and you know your producers and your legends you're gonna love this episode first of all we were just complaining that you know after doing those four shows together and and back in prison again on zoom uh, bunch of prison prison Prison. I'm just saying. <laughs> you, you, Fonte in, trapped in the '60s. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, Fonte, uh, you're you're uh, currently right now. You're back in North Carolina. Yeah, nah, I'm I'm. This is not prison for me. I'm actually doing quite well. Um, <laughs> I know we have. Yeah, he actually Fonte made it quite clear that you know this is he's living the dream right now. His his dream. <laughs> Yeah, man. But you know, but I but this was an episode I really did wish we could have done in person. Oh but. God. If if we would have done this in person, this episode would probably been seven hours. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? You're looking well and clear today, Light Year. You gotta share your secret. Uh, I, I worked out and took a shower. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Maybe real simple. Like it's fresh, you know what I'm saying? Like Steve, I just did it. Bill like, are, yeah. are Two friends in the corner, you know. Am, am I looking well? Yeah, man, you look you you look awesome, Steve. I, I put on some uh, brown coconut oils for you, for this show. That's what's up, man. That's what's up, Bill. Okay. How you doing? I'm great. Bill, you really missed uh, an important episode with Angie Martinez, by the way. Oh my god! Why, man? We we on. took it back to the old school. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should only do the in persons, and we should only do them in certain ways and i miss them already and it's and it's been days amen Aww. all right Aww. also i just like hugging fonte i haven't it was great man i haven't seen we'll, people we'll in person forever my microdose supreme that'll be the the yeah i have to revitalize myself anyway continue yeah so ladies and gentlemen i will say that this ah, i sound like a broken record with this episode's been a long time coming this is I feel like uh the forty fifth president when he ever does those like meaningless, you know, you're about to see the likes of an episode that you've never seen before. This this episode's for me. I'm being selfish here. I'm just saying it's for me. We've always wanted this gentleman, this legendary gentleman on our show. As I said at the top of the show, sometimes uh this is the joys of reading album credits and getting to know people and you know, I will say that this gentleman's work is is highly ubiquitous in in, in terms of really just being um, an important architect in dance culture, in in soul culture, in funk culture, in disco culture, in boogie culture, in post boogie culture. A lot of a lot of the uh, 
bands, a lot of underground groups uh, that we've danced to throughout the years, throughout the decades, from Conversion to the Fantastic Aleems to Sympho State. Uh, there's Log, his own Black Ivory, Freak, Dazzle. Jesus Christ, y'all. I can't believe it. We have the one and only Leroy Burgess on Questlove Supreme. Yes, sir. <laughs> Long time coming. How are you this evening, right now? Today's the day. Today's the day. Absolutely. This is the time for it. And it's a pleasure and a joy to be here with you guys. This seems like it's going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) I can already tell, like, this is going to be great because you are actually prepared with your own microphone. It's clear sound. You know, it's not like... I've been in Zoom prison before. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, um, I'm used to it. <laughs> so uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for uh, your interest in me and my work. Uh, it's pretty cool. Thanks. You're a legend. All right. We're just going to start with the top. I always start with this question. Leroy Burgess, what was your first musical memory in life? Okay, that's easy. That's really, really easy. My first musical memory when I was but a an infant was hearing my mother's voice. My mother mm. classically trained contralto, and she used to love to sing. And when I was born, she was singing. And given some of the things that was going on in the household and during her life, she sang through those things. Uh, you know, any amount of the regular amount of turmoil that you have in a black family home in America back <laughs> in the fifties. All right, you know. Still that, now. Yeah, exactly. And at that time it was five of us. I was uh number four and the fifth was to come. But I remember her voice and I remember it being the most amazing sound and thing for me to latch on to even before I could speak. And my mom let me know that when I first started learning to speak, I was singing more than I was speaking. So really? <laughs> okay. that, that's my first musical memory, my mother's voice. Can we say that she's responsible for your your silky falsetto? Well, <laughs> my mother never really got that. All right. She didn't. I mean, she it was OK when Smokey and the moments and the Delphonics would do it and Eddie Kendricks. And, but me, no, she never wanted that for me. She oh, your natural voice is so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> you should always sing in your natural. And um, wait a minute. But your falsetto is killer. <laughs> well, those were the days as as it was. But uh, she it took her a minute to get used to that. And by the time she did, that's when I morphed into more natural singing. And uh, I took the, I was making the transition, taking a hiatus from Black Ivy and that whole vibe and that whole, you know, slow jam thing and moving into my dance period, my, my, my disco period. And I made a conscious decision that I wanted to sing in my natural voice because that's what was happening. You know, the old days was happening and how Melvin and the Blue Notes was happening. You wasn't hearing a lot of up-tempo, uh, smoky and moments. You know, they were still in the slow jam joint. So um, uh, I needed to evolve and I felt I felt uh, an energy pulling me towards a new type of music or what was happening at that time. So, you know, I made a conscious decision to begin singing in my natural voice. And surprisingly, it's the one that is more most internationally known. Uh, the the world embraced it, while America embraces the falsetto thing. Could you describe uh, the household, like with your siblings and your your parents? Like a lot of our guests, especially kind of the Northeast based guests, they kind of have the, the same narrative where like they might have grown up in a church household where like secular music's not allowed or that sort of thing. Just like, what was the, what was the general atmosphere of your family and their musical acceptance? Well, my family, like most 
African descended families in New York City and around the country are spiritually based. So yeah, church was a part of what you had to do, mm -hmm. right? What you had to learn, you had to learn to have a relationship with the almighty and learn who he was. So that's what they drummed into your head. But what I liked about it was the music that you heard in church and the, and the choir and, and so forth and so on. So that locked me into that vibration. Initially, in the early part of my life, we were five kids, two parents. However, my biological father, Leroy Jackson Sr., uh, passed away when I was six years old, and my mother remarried uh, to Morgan Burgess shortly after that. Uh, so that is why I describe myself as Leroy Burgess, as okay. opposed to my full name is Leroy O'Neill Jackson Jr., but I describe myself as Leroy Jackson Burgess because I'm I'm uh, the sum result of both fathers. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. One actually uh, uh, conceived me and the other raised me. So I'm equal parts of their energy. We had a good house. We lived in Harlem River Projects and uh, went. I went to PS90 about four blocks away. Back in the day when you had to walk through four or five feet of snow, <laughs> you know, it was unheard of to close the schools on, you know, we, the snow day was, was, if it was 15 feet, that would be a snow day. All right. Anything below 15 feet, you know, you're going to get you behind the school, get you. <laughs> so right. we had a loving family. Um, my grandparents were famous for, uh, they built small churches up and down the East Coast, and they were the, they were the family that oh no you can't come in here with you got to come in here with Jesus and if you told him you know it's like but my mom was a little bit less strict I mean she took us through church St Matthew's Baptist Church uh, in our early time uh, mm -hmm. so so the spirit you know and being connected to spirituality was always a part of you know I connected it directly with music I, they were intertwined to me. So, you know, but as to, you know, growing up, it was a great time to grow up. Uh, that was back when, you know, urban families, black families, African descended families, we were very tight back in the sixties and fifties and stuff. I mean, it was just like a, a village. Uh, a, we were united in a lot of ways and we had the support of each other much more than say today. Uh, and that was one of the things being raised in that type of environment was just extremely cool. All right. So you mentioned Harlem. So I got to ask about just your musical memories of Harlem. Um, do you have any memories of like Bobby Robinson's record store or any yeah. early Apollo shows that you got to witness? I didn't make it to the Apollo until I performed there when Don't Turn Around came out in 1971. I knew it was there. I was scared of amateur night because I seen them boo people. <laughs> if that happened to me, it would crush me forever. And um, so uh, the very first time I performed at the Apollo, it was professionally. Don't Turn Around had come out uh, with Black Ivory. But uh, I felt like I just missed the music period, you know, the Billy Holiday and Duke Ellington and Count Basie when they was all there, Louis Armstrong. I just missed it. I came, I was born in 1953. So by the time I was about four or five or something like that and could interact with my environment, they was gone. So, yeah. so, so, but their energy, their energy was still there and the, and the type of clubs and the people that they gravitated to, they were still around and so there was a music that, if you listen closely enough, you could hear it just buzzing in the streets in Harlem. You walk, you know, just walking, say, from 151st Street, where I live, to 145th Street and back, you'd hear all kinds of music coming from all kinds of places, and some of the coolest stuff, some jazzy stuff, some, of course, African-influenced stuff. Uh, and it was just, uh, I would, I would keep those things in my head and be bopping around like, <laughs> like, yeah. like I was, you know, everybody thought I was a little bit crazy to say nothing of singing in the streets. I had no problem. 
just bursting in the song, walking along. I had no problem. So they they started to know that I was the I was they called me the singer. They oh yeah, they go the singer. <laughs> so you're telling me that at no point it, as a five, six, seven year old, are you mm-hmm. ever visiting the Apollo Theater just to watch a show or to see Apollo until I was uh, seventeen. Yikes. Seventeen. I didn't get to the Apollo Theater until I was seventeen. Can you tell me the first record that you owned or purchased? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can tell you the first. Well, I didn't. The one that I, the first one I purchased, or the first one I got that made a difference. All right, the 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 first record that had an impact on you. Okay, and then the one that you purchased with your own money. But this, this is a little crazy. The first record that had an impact on me was a record called Tubby the Tuba, right? It was a great musical piece that definitively described the interaction of the orchestra, right? Something that I used to hear all the time on the Nat King Cole records and the Johnny Mathis records and so forth. And so many great orchestras doing this great stuff. And I was like, oh, what, what part of that? And so forth. So this record, Tubby the Tuba, it's a children's story, but in within the story, they explain what the string section does or, or they demonstrate what the horn section does and what the percussion section does and so forth. I was like, oh, wow, I get it now. I get it. So I could now listen to records and distinguish, pull apart the strings, pull apart the horns, so forth and so on. So the very first record that, I, that influenced me profoundly was Tubby the Tube. So you're getting entertained, you're getting entertained, and you're getting educated right? at the same time of how, how things work. That's weird, because when, when Songs in the Key of Life came out, uh-huh. uh, when, you, when people purchased the album back in 76, uh, Stevie Wonder included like a 24-page booklet uh-huh. that, that had all these album credits in it. And, you know, for most black records, you know, liner notes of that caliber really weren't they weren't accessible, you know. So my mom would read those that to me like it was a. I read every single word. I was a line and note fool. All right. I see. Back in the days, um, with the Johnny Mathis albums and so forth and so on, mom would put on the album or dad would put on the album. I was like, give me that, give me the cover. Let me read it. Let me see who's on the back. Oh, this who's this person? And who's this person? And I'm, you know, I kept interrupting my mother and father from listening to the music that they very much wanted to hear. But I'm right. like, oh, who's this? Who, who is this? Who, 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 who. So, but I loved reading liner notes because it told me the story of the album. And and you know, it gave insight the creative process. And I was like, oh, what's an arranger? Yeah, what's in the range of what does that guy do? You know, and um, having the understanding of what the different orchestral pieces did, I got my appreciation for what the rhythm pieces did from listening to jazz, all right, and then hearing that bass. And oh, that's an electric piano, not an acoustic piano. How cool is that? This is the this type of style on guitar and so forth. So I got now I'm making the dis- distinction between how orchestral works with rhythm and how orchestral works with jazz and how the two of them mesh together. So I'm putting all these, this is a little seven-year-old, six-year-old brain trying to put all these things together, right? And uh, when it comes, I got a lot of information from reading the liner notes, the, who the songwriter was. They, these things became important to me, who the songwriter was. Okay. Oh, that's a great song. I hear a lot of songs, a lot of songs, but this one song, oh, that's great. Who wrote that? Right? So paying that kind of attention to it gave me great insight and great appreciation to the process, you know, because I needed to understand how to do it. The album that you purchased, what was that? Purchased is a funny word. <laughs> you might want to ask this yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead, The first record you acquired. We will acquired. say first. Acquired. First acquired. Record you acquired. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a better word. I, and uh, I kind of snuck it. And, and the first album that I acquired was Abbey Road by the Beatles. Wow. Oh. Uh, I was a Beatles fan, right? And my mother sent me the Gimbals. What you know about gimbals? 
Yeah, yeah, gimbals, not Macy's gimbals. Gimbals. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, you talking my language. Okay. I was actually, I was going to Gimbals and I was going to the SNH Green Stamp Redemption Center to get something from the Green Stamp that you Those get. Green Stamps. Yeah, so she, my mother had books and books and books. She had the, the catalog where she got everything. So the place was <sighs> up in Parkchester. I live in Harlem, so there's a couple of trains I have to take and so forth and so on. So I went up there to get her thing from, from there, pick up something from Gimbals, and I had to stop in the record department. Right, and um, <coughs> I acquired <laughs> the Abbey Road album, and I bought it back, and I started playing it incessantly. I played everything incessantly, really, but um, I started playing it incessantly, and um, nobody really asked me where did that album come from. Where did you get that? <laughs> uh, but but um. You know, I that was the first album I acquired. Now, the first album I started getting into were way before that because my mother was a member of, check this out, the Columbia Record. Uh, Wait, uh, that was out in the 60s? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, $11.4, like what was it back in the day? 12 records for a penny. Yes, well, sir. Wow. For a penny. As long as you, you know, you buy it. <laughs> so, my mom used to, she knew I loved music and she, like I said, she's a singer. So she was like, you know, when I was good, you know, and I had been, you know, uh, not misbehaving, uh, she would say, okay, well, you can buy, you can pick out one record out of 12 or you can pick out two records out of 12. So I used to get Temptations, Stevie Wonder, uh, The Supremes, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Butler mm -hmm. was one of my favorite albums, The Iceman Come Up. And, uh, I used to listen to those joints. So those were the first things that I started listening to uh, in order to discover who my musical being was. Wow. Listen, Black representation is essential. If I hadn't seen and heard certain Black women in radio, I wouldn't be in radio. Women like Robin Breeden, Candy Shannon, Michelle Wright, Deanna Williams, women owning radio stations like Kathy Hughes. Listen, the next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. Word. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Smurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I feel silly. Because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa, mind blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Now, you mentioned something earlier, and I was going to let it slide, but I got to know, because the thing is, is that when you mentioned the S and H green stamps, mm-hmm. probably the only memory that I have of my mother's, my grandmother on my mother's side mm-hmm. is her sitting at our table with like thousands and thousands and thousands of those green. Wow. What were those green stamps? Like next to those green stamps and um, those like Swedish cookies, you know, the, the butter cookie de- Designs yeah, that eventually Dane? become their storing spot for uh, sewing. The Danish cookies yeah. that, after you finish, they they become like the sewing kit. The sewing kit. The sewing be- kit. Yeah, that that's <laughs> that's a woman's uh, crown royal bag. <laughs> so, yeah. What were those? What were those S and H stamps for? Here's what's up. Basically, you go to the supermarket like anybody else, right? You buy X amount of groceries, right? For the money that you spent for those groceries, you would get X amount of green stamps. That and they and they would give you books that you could lick the stamps on, stick them on a the page, so forth and so on. When you get your books filled up, right, and mm-hmm. you know you had X amount of books. Well, this vacuum cleaner costs five books. Now this thing costs rewards. They were rewards program, yeah. And yeah. and if just had to get up there to the S and H Redemption Center and pick up what so my mom got all of these nice little because we went every time she went food shopping for the kids she'd have like a hundred you know <laughs> and so she you know I was the the designee in the family to go up there and pick up the S and H green stamp uh, merchandise. I was the counter. Mm-hmm. I would have to count with my she. I learned how to count. Oh, doing okay. those S and H greens. I never knew what they were for. I was like, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's probably like they, they they were for free stuff, stuff and stuff when it was good stuff when it was really really free, right? They right. didn't they did, the the companies that supported or that donated their products to the S and H factory, you know, for them to give away. They were mm-hmm. advertising for them and promotion for them. So, but you know, you get good I'm carpet and. You know, stuff. The game. game. Yeah. And I realized that half the items in my house must have came from SNH Green Stamps. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I told like some of my friends and luminaries and music heads that you were coming on the show. I have to say, you're probably the most connected human being I know because the first response that every music head tells me when I'm like, yo, we're about to get him on the show, they tell me, like, yo, you know he's related to Tom Bell, right? Yo, you know he's related to Archie <laughs> Bell, right? Yo, you know he's related to wow. Ronald and Rock. How many? The Bells. Just the Bells, huh? So you're trying to tell me that Tom and Robert and Ronald of Cool and the Gang and Al Bell of Stax and Archie Bell, of the, you're all related? Yes. Wow. How come no one has Document- put two and two? Yeah, I don't know. Listen, we are yes, all. Yes, you do. No, well, here's, here's the story with that. Patty LaBelle? No, no, no. Nah. That's, That's a stretch. stretch. That's a stretch. Oh, come on. Alexander um, Graham No, no. Right. I thought Patty was a stretch, but boy. Right, right, right. Ricky Bell? <laughs> Ricky Bell. Yes. Okay. We are all des- descendants of an enslaved individual named Prince Bell from the 1820s and 18, you know, 1860s, 70s or something like that. Prince Bell had a a total of three wives with each of his 
wedding wedding unions, he made a bunch of kids, right? Those kids became my grandparents and my mom and my dad. And the same is true for Tom Bell, or the Bell brothers from Kuna Gang, Jerry Bell from the Dad's Band. Uh, wow. Bell, Al Bell, Ricky Bell from Bell Bid DeVoe. Tom. Wait, I was only playing. That's real? Yeah. God damn. Oh, wow. <laughs> Outside of the Bell family, or, or Judge Mathis, Greg Mathis is a cousin, and the actor Richard Browntree is a, all of us are descendants of Prince Bell. The Bells. I also heard Betty Wright as well. Betty Wright. I met Betty Wright in. Who are uh, you leaving out? <laughs> are we related, Lee Ward Burgess? <laughs> right, right. Yes, we are. Well, I believe, that, I believe that I'm related to everybody in the world. <laughs> I mean, well, I see why. That is you. crazy. Yeah, so oh, shout, shout out to uh, Fire Burgess, who also, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Fire, right? Uh, uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fonte. Yeah, okay, player. Absolutely. Yeah, Fire. Yes, absolutely. Fire. fire Burgess, who definitely want this episode to happen. Wow, you are connected to everyone. Right. So when I think about where, you know, was it I predestined to enter the music industry? Um, I, I'm kind of leaning towards feeling like that's the case because uh, there's so many luminaries in my family that are not just in entertainment, but in music specifically, who have made a definitive mark on the industry as a whole. So I'm just bringing up the rear. <laughs> Thomas Bell thing might be real, too. I'm just saying. It was predetermined. Like your your future was everyone in your family has singing talent and has pushed the envelope. That's crazy. Can I just ask who found who first? Like who when did y'all know that this was the story behind your family? Yeah. Tom Bell back in my when I was very, very young. Alexander Graham Bell. Five, that's what I meant. Four, five, and six and stuff like that. Uh he used to come to the family picnics down that we used to have uh down in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We still have him in the same place every year. Um, he used to come, and I used to follow him around like a little puppy dog, right? Because he was always talking music. That's that was. Then he stopped coming, right? Mm -hmm. uh, fast forward to about nineteen, somewhere in the nineteen nineties. The Bell, the South Jersey Bell picnic couldn't happen, so the North Jersey Bell, the Bell Aikens picnic happened, and my mother travel to that because I was on the road, right? That's where my mother met Cool Cool and and Robert and Ronald and all of and Kevin's mother. And she was uh -huh. son the music. my son singing the music. Oh, oh so my, my son in the music. Hell, who's your son? Black Ivy. Who's your son? Cool again. Oh, well you can do. Right? So Wow. So that's how they and then um, a wonderful cousin of mine that I didn't know, I met her on Facebook. Her name is Geneva Norman, right? And she asked if she was a cousin and she relayed. And then she presented me with a document, the Bell family history going all the way back to Prince Bell, right? And it contained every single, everybody in the whole family, including all my brothers, all my siblings, all my cousins, all, you know, it, it was just really a definitive document, 16-page document that told me who everybody was and where everybody was and so forth and so on. So uh, uh, as I proceeded through life after finding that out, um, the last one that I met officially was Betty. Uh, before <laughs> was called to the Lord when, when she was called to her ascension i met her when the national r&b music society was giving her uh, a lifetime achievement award and uh i was you know i was uh, one, at present at that awards presentation and um i walked over to her after she got the award and i said congratulations miss wright um by the way i'm a descendant of prince bell and she jumped up and said, cousin, and hugged me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, and, and, and so, you know, things like that. That's been my life uh, to 
to uh, with Jerry Bell from uh, Dad's Band and formerly of New Birth. He was the lead singer of New Birth. Uh, yes. I performed with New Birth. And mm-hmm. I believe, didn't, didn't he eventually join Cool and the Gang in 87 when JT left? Jerry Bell is the one that sang Let It Web. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, he. Oh, that explains it. That explains it. That is what. Yo, because you don't understand when they made an album 1987 or 88. Okay. And, you know, JT had left the group. Okay. And they did an appearance on Soul Train. And Don was trying to put two and two together. Like, wait, where I know you from? Where I know you from? He said, oh, man, Daz Band. <laughs> and that did is. That? Wow. Okay. They're cousins. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Okay. So pushing the story along, because I know that the group started when you were young in your teens and whatnot. How did, how did you meet with, with Stuart and, and Russell, your, your bandmates in Black Ivory? Stuart uh, Bascom and Russell Russell uh, Patterson. We're talking about 1968, and that's when your family made. I was 14. That's the year that your mom said, "No, you're going to go out and get you're going to get the summer job and get start making your own money, so you can get the you know." So I got a summer job, and uh, I worked at St. Charles Bar Mayo as, as a youth counselor for. I was a 14 year old. Taking care of the eight year olds, you know that, that that kind of thing. Right. I'm a camp. You're you're the oldest sibling. Oh no 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 no. My eldest sibling is my sister Cheryl. She's seventy three, and okay. I'm seventy in August. Great for seventy, bro. So I met while I was on. You know what? We were having lunch and um, <clears throat> shooting bricks. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, but. We had a little transistor radio playing, and here I go again by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles came on. And uh, one of my co-counselors, Larry Newkirk, he started singing along with it. And somewhere halfway between the song, I started singing along with him. And at some point, he stopped, right, and just let me continue singing. And, you know, I closed my eyes, and I just continued singing the song. And then when I finally opened my eyes, all these people had gathered around me, right? So uh, Larry said, hey, you got a beautiful voice. I said, you too. And he was like, well, I got a group. You, you interested in joining the group? I said, sure. So I went to his house, Espinar Gardens, uh, 147th and uh, between 7th and Lennox, mm-hmm. and um, uh, met the rest of his group. The Mellow Souls was the name of the group. Uh, about a week later... Uh, the fifth member of the Mellow Souls uh, joined uh, uh, Larry Newkirk's group. So there were five of us, right? And uh, we started rehearsing, started learning songs, Delphonic this, Moments that, uh, Main Ingredient this. Just started, you know, practicing records, right? Um, and uh, Larry's sister, Gail Newkirk, she was friends with, or they were, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend with Patrick. Adams, right? Patrick to come and so we were all ready to meet Patrick. We met over Larry's house and so forth and so on. Patrick called to say he could not come. Right during the phone call, I was singing "Can You Remember" by the Delphonics. Right in the background, I was in the other room, Um, but Patrick heard it and he asked Larry, "Who is that singing?" And Larry was like, that's our lead singer. And so Patrick called me to the phone, asked me about, you know, blah, blah. Where'd you learn to sing? And where did you do? And I can't make it today, but can you meet me next week? And so that's a week later, we arranged a meeting with Patrick Adams, and he was enamored with the group, but he couldn't work with five people. Mm-hmm. So, so the first one to leave the group was Michael Harris uh, in educational pursuits pursuing his further education. Uh, uh, so that made it a quartet. Myself, Vito Ramirez, Stuart Bascom, and Larry Newkirk. And we began being groomed and developed by Patrick Adams, right? Finally, they got us um, 
here's, here's an amazing coincidence, all right? Mm -hmm. Patrick became friends with Gene Red, who was the manager mm -hmm. of Cool in the Game. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, when Cool in the Game first came out, they were an all-instrumental band. There was no vocals or anything. They just played, came out and jammed all these soul instrumentals that was dope, right? And, you know, people bought them and danced to them. But, and they were quite popular, doing quite well. So Patrick suggested to Gene or vice versa that, uh, why don't you let my group premiere themselves, you know, by singing a couple of songs, being backed by Coon the Gang? And they said yes. They said yes. So, we we were given two songs, Love on the Two-Way Street and Everybody is a Star, right? That Cooney mm -hmm. Gang learned and learned to play behind us to right. remember the group, right? Now, this is before we had any idea, me and the Bell Brothers, that we were related. We right. I just they were Bells, and I knew that I was the son of a Bell, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, so... That is how Black Ivy, after a minute, uh, Larry Newkirk and Vito Ramirez left to pursue their further education and so forth and so on, leaving just me and Stewart. Mm -hmm. right? But Larry's brother, Todd Newkirk, had was developing a group to follow behind us, Shades of Mellow Soul. In that group, the best singer was Russell Patterson. Okay. So we went, it was just me and Stuart. We went to Russell and we said, hey, would you be interested in being a part of this nonsense going on over here? <laughs> you could just steal somebody from their group? Yeah, basically. Basically, we, we basically stole Russell. That group dissolved. And that's when Stuart and Patrick got on the phone with each other and changed the name. Mellow Souls is like hokey as hell. Right, so you know, the, the mellow soul who doesn't who doesn't do that? Uh, so Patrick and Stewart got on the phone and they came up with Ivory, and then Black Ivory, you know, kind of described us because Russell and I were this complexion, and Stewart was light, you know, he's light skinned brother. So right. that puts you in mind of the piano and piano keys and all of that, and so Black Ivory. <laughs> That's why y'all named yourselves Black Ivory. Oh wow. Yeah. That's the best colorism story I've heard. Actually, speaking of which, I didn't even plan this moment, but right at this moment, I'm watching <laughs> you guys on Soul Street. Yo, your your afro is highly, highly impressive. I <laughs> wow. Oh my God! First of all, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta say, you are the only person with that footage. Oh, I know. In the world, <laughs> in the yeah, world. I realize this. I'm. We have. Been, I can't. I cannot explain to you why I have this footage, but you guys can take a wild guess why I have this footage. But we've. Been, I've been looking. I've been looking for that footage to see that show, that one performance. No, um, um, what goes around comes around. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, I'm working on a project and, you know, I keep the show on. Even if I weren't working on it, I'd be watching all 1100 episodes of Soul Trick. Like, it, this just always stays on no matter what. It's like my aquarium. You don't know how crucial we have been looking for this, that footage for over 40 years. All right. Oh. Wow. For over 40 years, the Soul Train compilation came out, and it I is know. one episode that's missing. Black Ivy and Hugh Master. No, it's Hugh Master Kayla. Wow. And, and, and from Chicago, uh, Don's homeboy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, you have the interview where Don, Don Cornelius. I got I, I, not to dance all over my stage. And I said, well, I couldn't help it. The music. Tore it up. Oh, my God. I, I got you, bro. Walk back over there. I want you to walk back over there. Let me see. <laughs> okay, so I feel silly because as much traveling as I do and as many Airbnbs that I stay in because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? 
And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa, mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Can you basically talk about Patrick Adams, like as as a record collector, and especially with Perception Records? You know, I I know always knew it as a jazz label. Like I know, like some of the funky or Dizzy Gillespie stuff, and you know, uh, well, also Fatback, but like James Moody, like a lot of jazz artists. Like, weren't they? Wasn't Perception primarily a jazz label? Was entirely a jazz label, uh, and and, uh, they were breaking into. Uh, R&B, and other marketplaces, which is why they found a place for Patrick because he was the voice of Harlem coming from the R&B side of things. And that's why he ended up being the A&R director. But yeah, when we went to the label, it had uh, Johnny Hartman was one of the artists on the Oh, right, yeah. Johnny Hartman. uh, It was Dizzy Gillespie. He was on the label. Um, But they had... They had uh they hadn't really broken out the today label. We were the ones to really break that label open today, okay. right? Yeah. Patrick was uh he became my, my absolute mentor and, and the guy who allowed me and and supported me in getting my focus together to become whatever I would become in the industry. So basically, you're watching him in the studio, and this is how you're getting your education, or I'm stealing everything I could steal, <laughs> every little part. And I was like, "How did you do that? And how did you?" And he loved he loved working with me because um, he loved the ideas that I, I could come up with on my own. You and I was my first composition, commercial composition. I wow! Wrote that, I wrote that when I was 16 years old, and Stuart came in and did the lyrics to it. Patrick loved it because I didn't even know that I was using two, four timing and six, four timing. And so I was just like playing something that I liked, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he was like, Oh, that's so great. And we're going to do a record. And, and we did this seven minute ec- epic. Yes. Of, 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 of you and I, that you and I, right. That, that, that became the, the, the thing for everybody to have. But so Patrick is, is entirely responsible for, introducing me and bringing me into the the music industry i i can say that unequivocally there's no one more was patrick was he a white guy black guy i've never seen pictures of him he's black okay word up all right for um for our listeners out there that are hip-hop heads um q-tip you and i is the sample to uh q-tips uh 
getting up, right? Yeah. Getting up. Was, yeah. was that was that shocking for you to hear it have a, a somewhat of a resurrection of sorts? Q Tip is just a, a really cool brother. He's just straight up above board. All right. And what happened was uh I was working for working at Manny's music on 48th Street for a little while. You know, big okay. ends me. And yes. Q-Tip actually came in and sought me out, right? And said, I want to, I'm thinking about using you and I for, you know, what for this new song. Right. And uh, I want to do it the right way. So I knew, I found out that you were working here, all right? You put me on to your publishers so that we can work out a licensing deal, right? And um, I always respected him for doing that because there's so many underhanded ways you can, you know, you know, he decided to have the integrity to come straight at it and to do the right thing. And I always respected Kamal for that. But yeah, he actually did the right thing by us. So by putting two and two together, can I assume that you guys' decision to record Don't Turn Around in Philadelphia at Sigma Sound had to do with your uh, your 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 cousin Tom <laughs> Bell also working out of there. First of all, Patrick and Tom Bell had a rivalry to you know it was New York versus Philly. Uh, Tom Bell was the the one of the leading catalysts of the Philadelphia sound. They became friends, so forth and so on. They knew each other professionally, and uh, Patrick was always trying to create great records and great songs like Don't Turn Around. When he became the pre- um, the vice president of the A and R at at uh, Perception Today, they gave him the budget to go to Philly and use. I think we used uh, half of MFSB. Yeah, Norman Harris and Vince Montana, like all the cats, right? All and the dudes. The other half of the band of the rhythm band was Willie Feaster and the Mighty Magnificence. Right. Okay. Right? which was the all-platinum Stang Records. Yes, the Sylvia Robinson crew. Right, yeah. So Pat- I was going to ask, how did you manage? Because when I read read the album credits, I'm like, wait a minute. Is is this all just a tri-state thing or like were? Because I think for a lot of us, when we think of the Philly sound, mm-hmm. we literally think that everything is going through Gamble and Huff. And it really wasn't until one day Joe Tarsi had told me like, no, like, you know, there's a period where even the MSF, MFSB cats broke away from Gamble and Huff as session musicians and decided to produce themselves. But since they recorded at Sigma, you know, it all sounded the same because of the, of, you know, the equipment they used and. And the style. Yeah. Just the style of the music there. They all did. Right. So, so people didn't feel a certain way. Like I would think that like Gamble and Huff would feel a certain way if, you know, Dexter Wanzel or, 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 or Vince or whoever is like at the helm or even your, your cousin, like it all sounds the same. Cause it's the same musicians, the same engineering, the same studio, the same instruments. So I'm just thinking like, this is all going through Gamble and Huff, but cats didn't feel a certain way about like, well, here's my best answer to that. It began as a partnership, uh, Gamble, Huff and Bell. All right, the three of them were together. That's where you get um, uh, Mighty Three music and so forth. I so- did okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that Bell was like a part of there. I just thought he was like, hey, right. I use the studio as well. I didn't realize that. No, he was now see where Mighty Three came from. An integral part of the gamble when they all was in their twenties and stuff like that. They worked together, right? The Iceman Cometh was an album produced. By Gamble and Huff and Bell. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite songs, Are You Happy? Completely arranged by Bobby Martin and Tom Bell. All right. Uh, so they were always connected. And then as music evolves, they became Kenny and Leon. And then Tom Bell went off and did his Delphonics thing. Right. While Kenny and Leon did the Intruders. And, you know, that became the early OJs and so forth and so on. So, and next thing you know, Tom Bell is doing the spinners and, you know, that whole, that whole sphere. But yes, indeed, 
Every time they went into the studio, whether it was Gambling Huff or Tom Bell, they'd use the same musician, Norman Harris, um, um, Earl Young on drums all the time, Vince Montana. They were right. the same cats, and they all had this uh, like style of composition, all right? Whereas Gambling, the songs that they wrote were similar. They they came from the kind of the same place, all right? And then using the same musicians to realize these songs creates that specific sound, the Philly sound, right? Which can come from either Gamble and Huff or Tom Bell and later on Dexter Wanzell, um, yeah. and Whitehead, so forth and so on, the various offshoots, uh, uh, Norman Harris, Baker Harris Young, so forth and so on, and the Vince Montana camp. They were all united in Sigma Sound Studios, and they would call each other up for the various sessions. So that's why all the records started sounding like each other. Thank you for finally saying that. <laughs> I, I just never knew. Right, and spit, and talk to all of them. Sorry, I'm sorry, Monte. Oh, no, now I was just going to ask before we uh, got off the first album. Uh, I keep asking you questions. Yeah. Um, with your sample, ah. yeah, uh, Wu Tang. Uh, how how did it feel when you heard that? you know, being used in, in that way for criminology. <laughs> Same story as Kamal. Yeah, I don't think so. Or no. <laughs> or, or no. Or no. I'm like, all right, I don't think this is going to be the same. Because I, I can't wait to get to over like a fat rat. Because I get the feeling that this, this is all like after the fact. Yeah. I didn't know about criminology until way after it came out and was successful. Right. And my first response was the old R and B head, right? <laughs> oh my God. Mm -hmm. This rap is taking over. And, <laughs> right. Oh, they I don't know, what are they saying to the kids? And so forth. So I went Mr. T on everything. <laughs> <laughs> so but then it was doing so well, and then it, it, it went gold, and then it went platinum. I was like, Chiching. Well, I might be okay with this. <laughs> <laughs> I might just be okay with this. And I actually am looking at the platinum plaque right there. I uh, love it. Only for, built only for Cuban links. Yeah, I was going to say, for a lot of us, I mean, yeah, my dad had your records. But it is those records that made us really, truly like revisit those records and look yeah, down the credits, way. and then just really get lost in your history. So, yeah. I, I know in the beginning it's a little jarring because you're like, "Ah, oh, my work's being torn apart" or whatever. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> that if there ever was an album for you to be associated with. That was the record. Well, that started a trend, and a trend which had begun earlier uh, by, uh, I think it was, um, uh, remember Strictly Business, that movie? Mm -hmm. The movie, yeah. 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 yeah, Halle Berry. Grand Pooper, he took Fat Rat. He used over like a fat rat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I was, I was not cool with him until I saw the first check. <laughs> And then and I realized, yeah, that makes I was sense. very cool with it. <laughs> hey, everybody, what's up? This is Fonte from Team Supreme. This interview was so good, so nice, we had to do it twice. We put it up, put it, broke it up into two parts. Honestly, this was one of my favorite interviews this season. I've wanted to talk to Leroy for a long time, and he did not disappoint. So please check back in as Leroy tells us more about his life and career. Peace, y'all. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Ball State wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now.